0: Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the last book of the Old Testament, the writing of the prophet Malachi. We've come all the way through the Old Testament, summarizing each of these books, book by book, to gain an understanding of what they contain, and Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And our key concept for this morning is this, never forget how much God loves you. Never forget how much God loves you. And that's the message of Malachi. As you're finding it, I read about a middle-aged husband and wife who were out driving one night, and they stopped at a red light. And at the red light where they stopped, they were behind a, a, one other car, and that in that car was a young couple. And it was obvious that the young couple were sliding over very close to one another. And he was with his arm around. The driver was the guy, and he had his arm around the girl. And they were kind of snuggling up together as they waited for the light to change. And in the car behind them, the wife turned to her husband and said, Do you see that? Yes, he said. Do you remember when we used to do that? Yes. Well, why don't we do that anymore? And he pointed to the steering wheel and he said, I'm not the one who moved. And that's the message of Malachi. A distance has been created between God and his people, but God's not the one who moved. His people have wandered away from close fellowship with him. Now, the setting of the prophet Malachi, his activity was approximately 100 years after the activity of the prophet Haggai. Now, you remember, Haggai was so successful in in prompting the people to build the temple, Time had gone by, and they had let the temple project languish, but Haggai encouraged them to get busy with the building of the temple so they could worship God, and he and Zerubbabel together were influential in making that temple be built, And, and sure enough, the temple is up. Malachi is prophesying, probably during the ministry of Nehemiah. And we think that it's during the time when Nehemiah returns to Persia to give a report back to the king as the governor of this outpost here in Jerusalem that Malachi speaks up. That being the case, Malachi is the last prophetic word that the nation will hear. It means that he and Nehemiah are chronologically the last actors, so to speak, in the Old Testament times. And after Malachi's voice quiets, there are 400 years of silence. And the people will not hear a prophetic voice again until John the Baptist crying in the wilderness. But when Malachi is functioning, the temple is built, the wall is up. The people are fresh off their promises of devotion to God, and yet, as time goes by, life is not getting any easier. They're not seemingly profiting in the way that they ought to profit financially. Life is still difficult, and a question begins to be asked by the the collective population of Jerusalem, why bother with God? Why bother with worship? It doesn't seem to be doing us any good. And this, this question of why bother with God leads to why bother living according to God's standards? Because when worship is diminished, righteousness is diminished. And they're becoming increasingly obsessed with gaining and getting wealth and material things. So then it turns into the question of, well, why bother keeping the Sabbath? We could work on the Sabbath and get just a little more money and a little more stuff. And it leads to, why bother being faithful to my wife? If someone else catches my fancy, I ought to be able to do whatever I want right, because God doesn't seem to be doing me any good. So why bother with him? He doesn't love us. If he loved us, things would be going better. So why bother? And along comes Malachi And the very first thing that he says is, you are loved by God. Bother with him. He loves you. So read with me verse 1, chapter 1. It says, An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now what we see in those first couple of verses is characteristic of the rest of the book, and that is God making a declaration and the people answering back God in a dialogue. In fact, I'm going to notice with you six declarations and six points of dialogue where the prophet speaks for God and the people speak back, with questions and objections. And the first thing that the prophet says, the first of his declarations is, God says, I have loved you. And the people answer back, how have you loved us? And God's response is, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Remember your history. Now it shocks us to hear that God would make a statement like, Esau I have hated. But what you should not read, Into these words is emotion. God is not saying I feel hateful emotions towards Esau. Rather he's saying this is a description of my actions. In comparison, in this comparison, to love someone is to act in loving ways, in nice ways to them. To hate them is not to act in loving ways. We see the same wording in Genesis 29, 31, which says, The Lord saw that Leah was not loved. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. The phrase not loved there is the exact same Hebrew word as hated here in Malachi. And the issue is not that Jacob hated Leah. But it was that Rachel was his favorite, you remember. And so he did all kinds of nice things for Rachel that he wasn't doing for Leah. And Malachi says, it's the same thing in your relationship with God. Think back to your history. Remember all the nice things that God has done to you, descendants of Jacob, and not to the descendants of Esau. His greater allegiance is to you. You are his chosen people. You have a city. You have a wall, you have a temple, you have an area that you call your own. Not so the descendants of Esau, their land is now a wasteland, and God has not blessed them. He loves you. Remember your history. And that leads God to a second declaration. Even though I love you, and even though I have demonstrated loving actions towards you over the years, you show contempt for my name chapter 1, verse 6, is the second declaration. God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, How have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. See, God says you're showing contempt for me when you should be showing me honor. If I am your heavenly father, where is the honor due me? Now, if you ask a typical Christian today, what does it mean to you that you have a heavenly Father and that God is your heavenly Father? Most of us will respond by saying, well, it means that I'm loved. But there's more to that picture than just that. It means that we are to honor and respect Him. And God is saying to them, you have failed to honor me as your Father. You have shown contempt for me by offering defiled sacrifices. Now, the sacrifices to, to worship God were meant to be a sacrifice. They were meant to be that which is best, that which is, is without defect. But instead of doing that kind of sacrifice, they're bringing the animals that they don't want anymore, that they know they don't have a use for. That's the kind of stuff that we'll give to God. And that, he says, shows contempt for me. That attitude still is around. I remember when I was a pastor... Back in New York, in the city where we lived, there was a, uh, a music store, and the music store would take second-hand instruments, fix them up a little bit, and resell them, and you could, you know, you get a little money for the instruments you don't want anymore, and they'd sell it as a profit. And one day, my phone rang, and a lady on the other end said, um, I've been talking to the music store about my old upright piano. We haven't played it in years, and it's taking up too much time in my house But the guys at the music store tell me it's not worth repairing, and they don't want it. So I was wondering if the church would want it. And then she said, and by the way, could you bring some guys down and pick it up? And could I have a form for a tax deduction? And I'm like, lady, you're killing me. We don't want your garbage. But that's exactly what's happening here in Malachi. The defected animals are the ones that they're bringing, but they were meant To bring that which was of the very best as a signal of honor to the Lord. And the issue that Malachi has here, priests, you're not objecting. You're not telling the people what they ought to be doing. You're allowing this to go on so as to not make any waves and keep everybody happy. And this idea of not making any waves, keeping everybody happy, do whatever you want, is hurting the people in their relationship with the Lord. It is a great responsibility to stand before people and represent God. And it is a great sin to alter the pure and obvious teaching of the Word of God, simply not to make waves or to appear acceptable. And we live in a day when everybody around us is giving us the message that it is actually a sign of maturity and refinement, to have open minds with wide allowances for all kinds of behavior that God calls sin. The church is collectively being told Don't make waves. Certainly, Jesus, a man of love, would be broad-minded to people's preferences. But listen to Jesus' own words. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. And I don't think that Jesus uses throwaway lines or says things by accident. I think that there is a narrowness in the pathway of righteousness. There's a narrowness in the gospel message that is built in by God because it represents God's heart and God's will for His people. And it is always out of love that His will is there. Think about it for a moment. If everyone on the planet walked the narrow path of righteousness as described by the Bible, we would not need jails. We would not need divorce courts. We would not need foster homes or drug rehabilitation centers. We would not need police or armies or locks on your doors and windows. It is the way of love, but it is a narrow way. The narrow way is God's way outlined in our Bible for our good. And Jesus is right when he says, but few find it. And we are to be the few. We are to be the few. But woe to us If we start redefining the narrow way and actually preach that there's safety on the broad road that Jesus says leads to destruction. Woe to us if just because we don't want to make waves, we make that sound safe. And that's what the priests in Malachi's day are doing. They are not enforcing what God has told them. So look at chapter 2, verse 7. Here's what Malachi says, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. The point is, we have no message left to ourselves. The only message we have is the message in this book. And that's the message we must teach. God says, you're not doing it. Thirdly, God says, you flood my altar with tears because I pay no attention to your offerings. And this time, the people change their question back and they say, well, why do you not pay attention to our our offering? Verse 14 of chapter 2. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Why aren't you receiving our offerings? It's because I'm a witness that you're taking marriage vows lightly. Your lifestyle matters before your God. I'm a witness that you're taking your marriage vows lightly. What's happening in the situation here is that the Jewish men are divorcing their wives and running after the younger women of the land. But they're not meant to marry out of the faith because the family is to be the place where the faith is incubated and where the faith is foundational for the nation. And so what's happening in this taking the vows lightly is that not not only is divorce happening and ruining families, the reverence for the Lord is diminishing and being depleted. And God says in verse 16, I hate divorce. I hate divorce because you're destroying families in the nation in so doing. Notice with me, though, he doesn't say, I hate divorced people. It is because he loves people that he hates divorce, because he sees the scars and the pain and the hurt of fractured families. And that's why I don't receive your offerings, because your lifestyle is not what I would want it to be. A casual attitude towards wedding vows breaks God's heart. Fourthly, God declares, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Verse 17 of chapter 2, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? This is what is wearying to God when you call sinful activity good. That is wearying to God. And if God was weary with them, he must be exhausted with us. Right? Sinful activity, good. See, here's their definition of what is good. What brings me profit or what brings me pleasure. If it brings me profit, it's automatically good, even if it is immoral. If it brings me pleasure, it is automatically good, even if it is immoral. And God says, I judge that attitude. That attitude wearies me. And they back that up with a cynical question. Where is the God of justice? In other words, God doesn't care. Why should we care? God's not doing anything. Why should we do something? I don't see any intervening here. Why should we intervene? And Malachi answers that question in the beginning of chapter 3. And it basically says, be careful what you wish for. Chapter 3, verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Where is the God of justice? When the God of justice shows up, you're not going to want justice. You'll want mercy. Who can stand when he appears? There's a wonderful thing happening here that we don't catch uh, in English because there is a double fulfillment here the hebrew of chapter 1 of chapter 3 verse 1 is hineni sholah malachi in other words i am sending malachi malachi's name means my messenger so when malachi says hineni sholah malachi everybody in the audience is going ah he's talking about himself he's saying that he is the forerunner, he is the messenger that God is sending so that soon the God of justice will appear. And that makes perfect sense in that context. They get that, okay, we should be listening to Malachi. But Jesus looks back on these words in Matthew chapter 11 and says he was really also talking about John the Baptist. This is the one about whom it is written, says Jesus, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He's pointing to John the Baptist. See, God is true to his word, and there's depth of meaning there that we don't catch. I will send my messenger to prepare. And, and there was a, pre- a preparer when the Messiah showed up and began that ministry of redemption for the world. Malachi is a messenger, a forerunner, but there will be another one, and it will be 400 years later, and it will be John the Baptist. And even though John is the voice crying in the wilderness, very few followed him. But Jesus is coming back. There's a, there's a, a secondary fulfillment of this in, in, in the verse 2. Because listen to the words of verse 2. But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, purifying the Levites, refining them like gold and silver. You see this judging, this judgment work there, this purification work, because not only does it look forward to John the Baptist and Jesus' first coming, but that is the prelude to the second coming when he will come as judge. And the question of who can stand when the God of justice comes you can stand if you know Christ as personal Savior. That's the answer. Because Jesus has served God's justice perfectly in love, and you can be forgiven before him. The God of justice can look at you and say, this is one of my own because of the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. But without that, you cannot stand when he comes. Fifthly, God declares, return to me and I will return to you. In chapter 3, verse 7, The people respond with, well, how are we to return? He says, but you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. It is the only place in the Bible where God says, you test me in this. Try it out. See what I'm going to do. Test me and see if I'm going to be true to my word. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, and you will receive blessing. You need to understand the Jews did not invent tithing. Tithing was, in the ancient culture, a way of showing honor and respect to those who were greater and more mighty than you. And the Jews noticed that and incorporated that practice in their law. And the tithe supported not just the work of the temple. The tithe also supported the needs of the widows, the needy, and those who were poor. And so when you don't bring in the tithe, not only are you uh, underfunding the religious life of the nation, you are underfunding the needy. You're literally starving those who depend on the food to come through the temple ministries. And God says, not only are you hurting them, you're hurting yourself because I bless those who are generous with me. I bless those. And God is still saying that to us. He's asking them and He's asking us to trust Him enough to be generous beyond what the world thinks normal. Be generous beyond what the world thinks normal for the things of God. And when you are, He says, you test me in this. I'm going to be generous with you. I'm going to bless you. And then there's a sixth declaration. God says, you speak harsh words against me. Chapter 3, verse 14. You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. How do we speak harsh words against you? You change the categories. What you're you're saying is the only thing that matters is profit, not eternal things. You're making things of eternal value irrelevant and of no importance compared to profit and gain. All of these things God is disputing with these people. And the question is, is Malachi effective as he argues his case before the people The word of the Lord. Is he effective? Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. It said, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. You see, what happened was they went home into their houses after hearing Malachi's presentation, and they talked it over. Some of them, when they talked it over, they turned their hearts towards God. And God listened to the conversations. Don't you want God to be pleased with the conversation He hears in your house? Because He hears. And God took notes. And He wrote down a scroll of remembrance. And those who turn their hearts to Him under the ministry of Malachi are called his, His loved ones, His righteous ones, His treasured possessions. I will honor them in the day that I arrive, He says. God listens to how they respond. That's the end of the dialogue between God and his people through Malachi. Chapter 4 is the epilogue, which proclaims the fact that the Messiah is indeed one, one day coming and that they should be ready for him. And then in verse 5 of chapter 4, we read these words. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And once again, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11, shows us Jesus pointing to these words and saying, that Elijah figure has come. That Elijah is John the Baptist. John, God is true to his word. And Malachi, through his book, has pronounced judgment on the twisting of religion into a weak thing that does not demand from us, does not cost us, does not change us, and does not challenge us. Malachi is saying that version of faith leaves out God and misses out on salvation. And when we step away from the book of Malachi, we step into 400 years of silence with no voice, no prophet, no writings, and no poems. For 400 years, the God of heaven is silent, represented by these pages between the Old and the New Testaments. But I want you to know that history continued to happen in these pages. And I like to say God's hand is in the glove of history. And the next thing that will happen is God's next big step. And it will occur to a young girl at her prayers. And she, it is revealed to her, you will bear a child, and you will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. The message is, never forget how much God loves you. Now let me tell you about next week. Next week, we're going to talk about what happens on this page on the blank page between the Old and the New Testaments, the 400 years of silence. Now, I bring this to your attention because I don't think you've ever heard a message that is outlined for you the way that God got the world ready in that 400 years for what's going to happen in the New Testament. But that's what we're going to cover. And what I want you to, to, to understand is that that activity of those 400 years, all of it is predicted in Daniel. And so we walk away from that portion of history and we'll learn that we can trust the word of the Lord and we can trust the Lord of the word because he is working as he outlines history. I mentioned that to you because you may have friends or neighbors or somebody who, who, who would be interested in seeing how God prepares the nation of Israel to incubate the Messiah. And he does it in between the two testaments in a powerful way. So I hope that you'll come back. But I hope that as the week unfolds, what you you rest on more than anything else is you are a person loved by God and he wants to work in and through you.